Welcome to Photographers Talking, the podcast that brings you some of the most innovative and respected photographers in the business. We'll find out what goes on behind the camera and why it's every bit as interesting as the images you see. I'm Chris McNulty, I've been a photographer and picture editor for over 20 years, and I'll introduce you to the people who make the most dynamic and interesting images in the world today. I think that the power that photography has is that you can show people and you're not telling people. People are seeing for themselves. Kirsty Mackay is a documentary photographer, filmmaker and activist. Her first book, My Favourite Colour Was Yellow, explored young girls' obsession with the colour pink and saw her listed as one of Time magazine's 34 women photographers to follow right now. In 2017, she was awarded the Rebecca Vassi Award, which helped her complete her second book, The Fish That Never Swam an examination of low life expectancy in Glasgow. You'll find links to Kirsty's website, kirstymackay.com, and her Instagram account in the show notes for this podcast. I began our conversation by asking Kirsty to explain the title of the book for us. The Fish That Never Swam comes from Glasgow's coat of arms, which uh, has a picture of the tree that never grew, the bell that never rang, the bird that never flew, and the fish that never swam. And... This um, coat of arms has intrigued me since I was a child. I've got a a school book somewhere where I did a project about Partick, where I grew up, and I have drawn the coat of arms. And um, it really intrigued me because it really made me wonder what was the story behind the coat of arms? And then as an adult, when I looked up the story and I found out it was all about St Mungo, I was a bit disappointed because as a child, what I imagined in my head uh, was much more interesting and maybe poetic to me. Um, But using that title, um, I think it just speaks about missed opportunity in a way for for some people. Certainly, if you look at the crest of arms, yeah. there's nothing that says Glasgow to you about it. You know, there's nothing about its industrial heritage or anything, does it? it, it it's almost like it's some sort of remote place in the countryside, which is not really. But It's everywhere in Glasgow. I mean, it's absolutely everywhere. It's on the top of the School of Art. It's uh, I see it um, in, in buildings a lot. The, the crest is everywhere. It's on uh, Kelvin Bridge. Um, so I think Glaswegians love it to an extent, um, yeah. but I didn't. I didn't really enjoy the story behind it. <laughs> it didn't. The story behind it just didn't capture my imagination as that picture you, no. did. Yeah. What you're looking at in this project is something that's known as the Glasgow effect. You set off looking for the Glasgow effect. Is that right? So I started reading articles in the paper um, around. 2009 I think Uh, one that really stood out for me uh, was an article in the Guardian and um, life expectancy for men in the Carlton at that time was 54 so I started to think about this way back then and I went to the Carlton and I spent a day there taking pictures and I concluded that it wasn't a story that I could tell because I wasn't a part of that community and it just also wasn't going to work. Me living down in England, it felt too remote and just not right for me at that time. And then in 2016, the research was published from the Centre of Population Health. And in that research, uh, it's the most thorough research um, about the subject that's been done. And it pinpointed the root causes. And it also 
I also said that this was a Glasgow-wide problem. Glaswegians across all social classes suffer a reduced life expectancy of 15%. So when I realised that, I thought, okay, I, I can tackle this. You know, my story is part of this. What I wanted to answer was my own questions. What's different about people in Glasgow? You know, do I carry something in my body that I'm going to pass down to my children? Yeah. So that was my starting point. And through the process of making the work, what I'm able to conclude is there is nothing different about Glasgow or the people there. There is no Glasgow effect. Um, but what there is, is a place that has been subject to a variety of damaging political policies that come from local government, regional policy, and UK government. So in fact, uh, the Glasgow effect has really just become a shorthand for uh, low life expectancy, uh, particularly in men, uh, but, but uh, in all people who live in certain areas of Glasgow. Yeah, the problem with the Glasgow effect and... Um, David Walsh, who I've been working with at the Centre for Population Health, um, they're trying to get people to stop using that term because yeah. it places the emphasis on Glasgow and the people of Glasgow, and really the problem is not with the people of Glasgow. So when I talk about it, I say uh, it used to be called the Glasgow Effect. Right, OK. I was thinking about this the other day there. There have been immigrant, communi immigrant communities coming in over the years and they don't, do they suffer in the same way or are they, are they subject to the same rigours of the, the Glasgow effect? I think there's not enough data on race and ethnicity. But what I do know is that people who've grown up in Glasgow and they move away, they still carry that reduction in life expectancy within their body. And that's me and one of those people. It's, it's interesting that you say that, but I was reading that Harry Burns, who was the chief medical officer at the time, he cited stress as being the major contributory factor to the, the Glasgow effect, and particularly stress in early life yeah. as something that, that you carry through to your adult life. Harry Burns's work has been really influential in this project. Um, I watched his TED Talk quite early on in my research, okay. and I was really struck by his experience of working in the east end of Glasgow. Um, he, he did work as a surgeon, and he noticed that in his patients in the east end of Glasgow, their bodies actually took longer to heal from surgery. Okay, and right. so I think that was, that was the thing that first got Harry really interested in this subject. And you're right. I mean, these problems come from experiences um, in early years, very often. Um, and uh, in the book, I have actually got the ACEs questions. And that's, uh, that's a questionnaire of adverse childhood experiences. And there's 10 questions. And I score four out of 10. Is that right, and yeah. if you have... Uh, a score of four and above you are much more likely to um, have addiction problems um, have high blood pressure um, have all these different different things because of that and there's people in my book that I've worked with um, who have eight out of ten aces. really goodness yeah 
So oh. ACEs is a really good way of understanding people's early experience and how that will affect them for the rest of their life. How do you fit into this documentary and the Glasgow effect? Are you comfortable speaking about that? Or are you? Yes, absolutely. Um, so um, on the cover of the book is a photograph of me as a baby uh, with my mum and dad. It's a picture I found in my mum's house in a pile of photographs. And there's an ink stain over my dad's face. Um, and that's very poignant because my dad died at the age of 62 from cancer. And so his death left me with loads of questions. You know, was he one of the 5,000 extra deaths that occur in Scotland every year? And then later on in the book, there's another photograph of myself and my mum and dad. And I'm about 10 months old and we're in the first flat that I ever lived in, which was in Mary Hill. Um, and it was a room and kitchen and the toilet was on the landing that we shared with the neighbours. So um, my story connects to this work at various points through the book. Yeah. Um, so that's really connecting to the housing issues in Glasgow. Um, and there's another picture uh, of my brother who's sitting against a wall in my mum's house. And my neighbours on the other side of that wall, very tragically, when I was, um, I think I was about 16, my neighbour jumped out of his bedroom window which was just the other side of that okay. wall and, and uh, died by suicide. So there's, there's many points where my own story um, connects directly with the story that I'm telling in the book. The extract that you sent me, uh, the first and last pictures, are, are those two pictures of you with your, your mum and dad. I, you know, I'm really, really drawn to these pictures because on the one hand, uh, they're just pictures of, you know, a young family. But the more you look at them, they tell such a story. But there's a lot of information in that picture and that's Isn't why there? I love it. There's a like a, a rubber duck on the on the top of the yes. cupboard. And yes. that was there because I'd be washed in the sink, um, yes. which is just behind us in the picture. Yeah. Um, and the little boy the the little kind of electric boiler above the with the little yeah. sort of thing that goes on it yeah and it's, oh. i think it's important to say that my mum and dad were so happy to get that flat that was the first flat they had on their own and they were absolutely delighted to get that flat and we were really happy well there's two other things they look chuffed to bits you know your dad yeah. looks so proud to have you sitting there yeah. and um he's really young as well in that picture isn't he yeah, I was born on my dad's 21st birthday and really? my mum yeah. was 20. Okay, all right. Yeah, they okay. were very young, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and as I say, they look absolutely chuffed to bits with you there. And you're so well turned out in that picture, aren't you? You're absolutely spotless white uh, dress and you look in their best clothes. The other thing that's kind of strange about that picture is it's in colour. Uh, and what would that was 1971. Yeah. That's, that was not a cheap thing to do in 1971, was take a colour picture, was it? Well, it must have been a really special occasion, or they must have invited someone round to take that picture. Yeah, and I've always thought I don't actually have that many pictures of my own childhood. Right. Um, because it was expensive, Yeah. and pictures were generally taken on birthdays. And I don't know what the occasion was. 
right yeah um for that particular picture because it's not it's not my birthday um but it's a it's it's a portrait of a family in their house yeah um and i think it's quite unusual is that almost like a picture that you would take yourself i mean it seems to me that it might well be it's the kind of picture i would strive to take yeah because i think um there's a lot of information in it and it's very pure no one's really posing in a way that people would pose now and i think sometimes you know my own criticism of my own work is that i i'm too influenced by the aesthetic yeah whereas this picture is just pure and honest and that's what i that's what i strive for absolutely doesn't it It just yeah as you say it's just um someone has pointed the camera at at the people sitting there and they wanted to have their picture taken for whatever uh, for whatever reason you say yeah and i think if we'd taken that picture then maybe we'd start to wonder about why didn't we take it from the other side or you know why can't you see their yeah. feet in it or you know and you know would i have moved that rubber duck yeah, absolutely and that's yeah. like that's key yeah. to yeah. the whole picture yeah the next picture that i wanted to speak to you in that selection that you sent me is something that, that absolutely fascinates me I don't really know if it's common anywhere else, but it's of a street in uh, Drumchapel where the houses have been demolished. There are absolutely no houses uh, in this photograph at all, even though it's quite a wide shot. And it's a couple of boys walking home from school and the road that they're crossing stretches away into the distance. And there's no houses on it. There's the old street lights which are turned on and there's girls standing down at the bottom of the, the street. That says so much about Glasgow, doesn't it? Where you demolish the houses, but the people, you know, the people are still there. You don't build anything new on it. Why, why were you drawn to that scene? That picture's taken in Linkwood Drive, uh, where my cousins used to live. So when I went to Drumchapel, when I started taking pictures for this project, I just automatically walked up Linkwood Drive to see their old house, okay. and it was gone. And I had no idea they had been demolished. And it was like a massive chunk had been taken out of Drumchapel. A third of what I I had known as Drumchapel had gone. Yeah. Um, But there are new houses being built and they started at the bottom of the hill. And uh, I think it's housing association houses that are being built and better houses. Um, But that picture of the land where the streets are still there and the lampposts are still there, but there's no houses. That's something that I've come across over and over again doing this project. You've got areas like that in Easter House um, and, you know, many areas in Glasgow. And I've looked at Glasgow on um, Google Earth and there's so many, there's still so many areas uh, of derelict land. Yeah. We've actually looked at other cities, and other cities don't have this. And it's a mark of the scale of change that happened in Glasgow when yeah. they knocked many of the, you know, the old houses down and didn't replace them very quickly with new housing. My gran was born in Mary Hill, probably about hundred years ago now, and she's no longer with us. But I went to look up the street that she lived on in Google Earth. I, and that, that that street is like this picture. It's completely demolished, although the street lights and the pavements and the, the road is still there. But it made me think that those houses must have been demolished twice or even three times by now. You know, they keep on rebuilding the houses. 
but they're not they're not improving people's lives by very much, are they? Or are they? I don't yeah, know. Yeah, you're right. There are some areas where there was tenements that were demolished and then they built modern tenements and then they've been demolished and there's there's some there's houses that I've come across who um well there's a high rise that was in Castle Milk that only had a twenty year lifespan. You know, they built new houses and then after twenty years demolished them. Uh, it seems it seems crazy. That that I, I mean I, that that's gobsmacking for you to you know to hear that that's that is that's quite stunning stunningly inept, isn't it? Or yeah, and I think now looking back, um, we kind of place a different value on community. But in the fifties, when the um, peripheral estates were being built and the tenements were being knocked down. I don't think that modern idea for Glasgow, I don't really think they thought about the value of community. Because um, even in my own family, my gran lived uh, near Charing Cross. Okay. And when all those tenements were pulled down to make way for the M8, her and her sisters were dispersed all around the city. Okay. So previously they lived within the same streets of each other and then all of a sudden their own support network is dispersed all over the city and they've got to take two buses to go and visit their family. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the factors in you know, Glasgow's excess mortality is that communities were broken up and communities had to start again from scratch and people lost their support networks. And that could be one of the early factors of stress that Harry Burns talks about, I suppose, as well, couldn't it? Yeah, most most definitely. And community did start again from scratch because community always does. Back to our interview with Kirsty in a minute. I wanted to let you know that Kirsty will be promoting her new book through a number of talks and events later this year. Dates are a bit uncertain at the moment, but you will find details on her social media and website. If you are enjoying the podcast, then I hope you'll catch up with the other episodes in this series at papercamera.co.uk or wherever you get podcasts. The next two pictures in the, that series that you sent me are Debbie and her newborn baby in Anderson. And she's cradling this baby in her arm. And she's got fantastic eye contact with you. And it's just a beautiful window-lit portrait. Anderson is a place in the centre of Glasgow, isn't it? Where, where that motorway actually punches straight through the middle of it, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, and Debbie just has such a kind of fierce and proud look on her face, I think, yeah. in that picture. Um and I took the picture because I had actually been trying to photograph a baby, a newborn baby in a hospital. Right. Um, because what I wanted to talk about was that journey home, that right. very first journey home from hospital and what area or what postcode um, you're, you're going to live in and how that has such a massive um, influence on on the rest of your life and your life chances and your life expectancy. Um, I didn't manage to find a baby that was just being born in the hospital, but I found Debbie and, you know, she'd just come home with her newborn baby. Um, and so that's that's why I, I took that picture. The uh, second picture in that our, our little baby is in the baby box, which uh, came in in 2017. 
Now, that is when my daughter was born. We missed out on the baby box by, you know, a couple of weeks. And the, the baby box is a, a big cardboard box that comes with everything that a newborn baby should need for, you know, the first few weeks of their, their life at home. And the box has also got a, a mat in it and it's for the, the baby to sleep in as well. Now, it was controversial when it was brought in in Scotland um, because I just for all sorts of different reasons. Um, but it's been highly successful in Scandinavia and that's why the, the, the government brought it in here. But putting your baby to sleep in a cardboard box doesn't seem like the thing, sort of thing that a wealthy country does, does it? Yeah, I don't know how many babies actually would sleep in the box. No, I'm not um, sure. Uh, when I went to Debbie's house, um, I had read about the Scottish baby box and she just had she just had one and she was showing me yeah. what was in it. Um, and it comes full of, it's a really, it's really, really useful and it comes full of, you know, the stuff that you need when you've got a newborn baby. I went to visit a baby bank. You know, we've all heard about food banks, but there are also baby banks um, and I went to visit one um, just on the outskirts of Glasgow and um, there's a real need for um, all the stuff you need for babies because it's so expensive. Yeah. And there are baby banks that are filling in those gaps and giving people what they need when they can't afford it. The next two pictures uh, in the series that you sent me, well, I'll, I'll take them one at a time. I wonder if you could tell us about Billy from Easter House. I think working with Billy has been one of my most amazing collaborations on this project. Um, and you really was looking to work with a young man. And I found Billy through a newspaper article um, and he'd come through a mentorship programme. And I'd been in touch with the mentorship programme and I hadn't really had any success because quite rightly they were very protective of the people that yeah. they work with and they didn't necessarily want a photographer um you know to be photographing their young people billy had turned 18 and there was an article in the paper about billy's journey on this mentorship program um, and so i contacted him directly i met billy i think he was 19 when i first met him and i stayed in touch with billy and i photographed him um, you know, the last time I photographed him was last year. But the first picture I took of Billy, he's lying on the ground uh, on this landscape where the houses are knocked down. You've still got the streets and the lampposts. So he's lying on this derelict ground. And I, I asked him to lie down on the ground because I'd been thinking about my point of view in this project and how yeah. I've got a very... Uh, personal connection to Glasgow but um, I also don't live there anymore so I've got this more objective point of view and almost like I can look down on it as a place um, and so I just was trying to I had this idea in my head of trying to capture Billy on the land and when I went to Easter House, what I saw surrounding Easter House is all this beautiful countryside. You know, there's seven lochs surrounding Easter House. Yeah. And there's a lot of beautiful countryside. But in all the photographs I had seen of Easter House, 
all you see is young people in hoodies with smashed out windows. And these, these pictures are over 20 years old. I'm just in that picture connecting them to the land, to this place and how I saw the place, um, which was different to how it had been pictured. These places are quite urban, as you say, but they are kind of on the outside. They're pushed away from the centre, aren't they? So they they do have that. Uh, they do have the town and the country, don't they? But the the people who live there are maybe quite. They're they're not always connected to the countryside in the way that you might be in a middle class area of the city. Yeah, and I think um, those areas always tend to be photographed in the same way. Right. Yeah, I see where you're. I see where you're getting there because if you'd stood them up. He would be breaking the th- those horizontal lines, aren't they? That were the of the landscape, the way it kind of naturally flows. I think what what's come from that picture is it's a very um, kind of open ended picture. People see many things in it, so people think that he could be dead. People think, oh, he's daydreaming, looking up at the blue sky. People think, oh, he's 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 drunk. Yeah. It's really interesting what other people um, read into that picture. The caption that you have there is, Billy was told not to bother applying to go to university uh, by his teachers at school. I can't imagine why they would have advised him to not go to university. It just seems such a strange thing to to do for a teacher. It does, it does. But what I found is there's so much discrimination in these areas. Um, what happens very often is middle-class people um, come into areas like Easter House, Drum Chapel, and they they come into those areas as teachers, as social workers, and the vast majority do an amazing job. But some people also take with them their, their discrimination. Okay. And a lot of teachers who work in these areas have very low expectations of the pupils that they're teaching and they're just not as valued and that was what happened to Billy and the next picture, the one that seems to be sort of paired with that in my mind just because they're close together is a young lad kind of walking down the road uh, carrying two bottles of vodka that's another important picture um, and it's one that is right on the line for me Um, So I took that picture in Drum Chapel Shopping Centre. It was about 11 o'clock on a Saturday morning and I had my camera set up on a tripod and I found that having my camera on a tripod, a lot of people assumed I wasn't even photographing them. Right, yeah. Um, And this young man, he saw my camera and he had come out of the off-licence and he did a performance. He put his bag down and he took his two bottles of vodka out and he, he held them out. And I took two frames and then he put the vodka back in his bag and he and he walked off. Yeah. It was as straightforward as that. He did a performance for the camera and I took the pictures. And I think now with hindsight, if that happened again... I would go straight up to him and I'd talk to him and I'd find out a bit more about him, get his name. But at that point, um, I didn't. It took me many visits to Drum Chapel before I made any photographs. Right, okay. Um, And on that occasion, I wasn't feeling very relaxed at all. 
in the shopping centre, there's a, a group of young people hanging about, um, which felt threatening to me. Right, I'm sure okay. people um, who know the area, it's not threatening at all. They probably know those young people. But it felt very threatening. Um, and so I was kind of, I was quite passive in a way, taking that picture. Um but it's an important picture for me because of how people interpret it. Um, research has been done to say that middle-class people consume more drugs and alcohol than working-class people. Yeah. Um, and when you look at that picture, I think it's open to a lot of interpretation. Well, certainly you wouldn't go down to Waitrose and see people coming out waving their bottles of red wine about, would you, in, this, in the same way? I think what um, that young man is perhaps tapping into, and it's what I've seen from researching um, lots of people's social media posts, um, a lot. some people brag about what they've got to drink. Yeah. Um, I see a lot of pictures of young people with their bottles of Buckfast, and it's, it's, a, it's a celebration, you know. They're... They've got their carry out. They're going to have a good time. It's a small celebration, just in the same way as photographs are markers. You know, yeah. we use photographs as a marker to celebrate a birthday, to celebrate a Christmas. And now with social media and digital photography, um, there's the opportunity to celebrate all the little things as well. That's why so many people post pictures of their dinner or, you know, their cup of coffee on Instagram. And it's the same thing that that young boy's doing. You know, he's got his vodka. He's going to have a great weekend. I'm happy for him. Yeah, <laughs> you know? absolutely. I think other other people would will look down on him. The reason I wanted to speak about that picture and uh, the next picture is it. Dion, who's with her dad. Yeah. It's when I was looking at these pictures, uh, it came to me that the two things that we don't like to see in Glasgow um, or in the west of Scotland, generally as as part of our character, is uh, bravado and uh, vulnerability. Yeah. In those two pictures, there seems to be that that seems to be the prevalent. Uh, emotions or states of mind in both of those. Is that something that you identify yourself? As a photographer, I definitely go towards vulnerability. Yeah. I definitely focus on creating intimacy and I suppose in some of my most successful pictures, that's what, that's what I'm able to capture is vulnerability. So yeah, and you're right that the other picture of the young guy is his bravado. So yeah, I think you're you're spot on there. Yeah. But yeah, speaking about Dion, who's 18, um, and if people haven't seen this picture, I'll we'll, we'll just uh, briefly describe it. She is a tall, uh, blonde girl, and her dad is he's, he's he only sort of really comes up to about eye level with her, doesn't doesn't he? She's really tall. Her dad has got his top off uh, and he's got tattoos there with Dion's name on it. There's such a connection between them. Obviously, they're standing with their arms around each other. But the more I looked at it, I realised that they've got the same eyes exactly and they hold you with the same regard, don't they? they mm. it's, they're really, really similar. Um, how did that picture come around? So I met Dion um, 
in 2017 when I had won the Rebecca Vassi Award and I used um, the funding from that to stay in Glasgow for a month um, and really concentrate on this project. And I went to a boxing gym in Easter House and Dion was there and she was teaching uh, some of the younger ones. Uh, and I photographed Dion that day and I just kept in touch with her um, followed her on social media and it wasn't till maybe two years later that I took that picture Okay. I took the picture in the summer and then a few months later I did an interview with Dion and that's something I've done quite a lot I kind of I tend to separate the taking the photograph from the interview okay. I do with people but it, it came about um, because I saw so much in Dion she was really somebody that I wanted to photograph again. Um, but being connected with her on Facebook, I could see what she was going through. Um, I saw that she lost a friend of hers and her friend was 16. Okay. And I watched the videos that Dion had posted from, they had a balloon launch memorial to say goodbye to her friend. And I watched that. And there's teenage girls in Easter House crying and really upset and struggling to let go of their balloon, saying goodbye to their friend. Okay, yeah. So I could see what was happening in Dion's life. Um, and I wanted to photograph her again. And I, I knew her dad had a tattoo on his chest because um, I had seen that from her, her photographs. So I decided to photograph them together. And what I didn't know is that her dad had another tattoo across his belly um, with his other daughter, Casey Lee's name on it. Uh, and she was born stillborn, and okay. it's got her date of birth on it. So um, I didn't know that until I took the photograph. Yeah, I did. I did notice that, and I did wonder, you know, at that age, what uh, the date, what, what that would be. That's. And I think what I wanted to say about that picture is, I think you know, we're aware of the health inequalities in Glasgow, but I think uh, most people just think um, it's about losing a couple of years off the end of your life. Yeah. But actually, it's not. It's also young people dying. Um, and when you look very deep down into this story um, and you look at premature mortality, that's deaths under the age of 65, there's a 30% uh, increase of that in Glasgow compared to comparable cities in the UK. There is a danger, I think, sometimes when we start to speak about the Glasgow effect or the social situation with the poorest people in, in Glasgow. Um that everyone is just trudging around and miserable in their, their lives all the time. Is that what you found? Or are people actually quite welcoming with you when you when you go to meet them? Or are they suspicious of you? What, what's your impression of people in, from Glasgow that you photograph now? So that's, that's not my impression at all. Um, I think with this subject, um, it would be easy to go down a poverty porn kind of route. Yeah, I think that's but a more elegant as, way of saying what I was trying to say there. As someone who is, you know, a working class photographer, I don't see people in that one dimensional way. I think um, I'm actually in awe of the people that I photograph. 
Um, and I think that comes across. Um, I think I'm photographing people as I see them, and I'm seeing them in a good light. Yeah. I'm not just seeing one aspect. You know, Dion is really interesting. Um, you know, I could talk about that picture for a long time because she's also um Scottish boxing champion. Um, she's she's really really interesting. Um, she's put so much effort into her boxing career, and her dad is totally proud of her. Yeah. Um, but what I was really wanting to try and express through that picture is the amount of loss and the amount of grief um, that people are experiencing because of excess mortality. Well, maybe I'll come at what I was trying to say there in a slightly different way. Um, it sort of came up earlier on there that the, the award kind of allowed you to come and, and live in Glasgow for a month. How did you spend that month? Where did you stay? Did you stay with family or...? So throughout the whole time of making this project, um, I'm living in England and I'm just trying to travel up to Glasgow as much as I can. Yeah. And I would stay at my mum's house and I would take my youngest daughter with me and just dump her on my mum and I would go out and make work. And it, it worked really well, but it was also limiting. And so when I won the Rebecca Vassi Award, um, I spent that money on rent of a flat. Okay. And so I rented an Airbnb flat um, a couple of streets away from my mum's house. Um, and we travelled up as a family. Then I was able to spend a whole month in the city and really kind of crack on with everything I wanted to do and make many, many more connections. And I set a lot of the relationships up in that in that time. And then I could just carry on working with those people that I met during that time. Um, I wonder if you can speak about how you, you make the connections, you know, how... You meet one person who passes you on to the next person who passes you on to the next person. Is that quite easy in Glasgow or is it more difficult for you being from Glasgow? The way I work, um, I think you could say is quite scattergun. Right. Or you could also consider it as very thorough. So um, I start with an idea, but I really don't know how it's going to end up. And I pursue every avenue that I come across as a route to making work. So to give you an example, um, I started to photograph my own family. Um, another example is I tried to track down some of my old school friends um, to photograph them. I also found some people through social media. Um, I contacted organisations and found some people through organisations. So I'm trying many, many ways okay. to put myself in front of the people I want to photograph. I saw a picture on your Instagram. It really, uh, it really connected with me because it was a bag of 120 films, um, and it said on it, "That's it. It's, it's something like that's me. I'm finished my project now." Um, so, did you shoot the whole project on film? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Was that something that came right at the start where you decided I'm going to shoot this? I want to shoot something on film, and I want to go to Glasgow. Was that an intrinsic part of it, yeah? Um, well, I use film and digital, but I primarily use film. Right. Um, and I use film because I've found my ideal camera, and it's a Lumia 7, 
and it's a film camera and that's just the camera that I want to use. Okay. Um, I use that with Portra and then I get them all scanned and that's it. I don't do pretty much anything else to the scans after that. I've got my setup and that gives me the kind of picture that I want. And you shoot everything at the same speed, is that right? Does that do you shoot I mean the same film speed for everything? Uh no, no. I use one sixty and four hundred. So that's pretty much it. So you have some flexibility within that, uh to make choices. See that that's what I would that's why I'm asking. I'm, I'm really interested yeah. in the choices that you make. And you said earlier on that you yeah. had your camera on a tripod uh yeah. in that busy shopping centre on a Saturday morning. That gives you some stability, doesn't it? You're anchored to the spot. You're now part of the scene. You can't just walk away, can you? You're you're part of that environment when you've put a tripod down and you've put a camera on it. You have to wait a certain amount of time. And I suppose as well, people accept you as being part of the environment because you have, you know, set up shop there, don't they? Which is maybe how you got engaged with that young guy. Yeah, and I don't use a tripod um, that much, really, but I used it in that instance because a lot of a lot of students say to me how do you become comfortable photographing on the street i was not comfortable photographing yeah. in drum chapel shopping center and i put the camera on a tripod and i took an assistant and so what that did was it meant i could talk to somebody and the camera was just there and there wasn't this emphasis of me looking through the camera directly at somebody and I was also talking to people and me and my assistant were making um, audio interviews at the same time stopping people and chatting to them so I was talking to local people and the camera was just happy to be there on the tripod Um, so I think you're right in a sense I became part of the activity that was happening yeah. in the shopping centre. Um, and so I I definitely used the tripod to, you know, to help me out in that situation. Um, but ordinarily, I guess what I'm doing is I'm putting a lot of restrictions on myself by using the same camera, by using film. I only use daylight. Um, and restrictions are really useful when... When you're taking pictures, well, the restrictions in one sense, aren't they? But on and the other, on the other side of that is that you don't have to worry about all the varieties and complexities that you might have with a digital camera and all those choices that you could make if you just shuffle all those things off to one side. You know what you're working with, then, don't you? So, in some ways, it makes it you know much easier. I mean, yeah, that that's part of it. I've got a camera that. Um, I'm very fluent in because I don't want to be thinking about the camera when I'm taking someone's photograph. Yeah. Um, so it allows me to just focus on them and this space in between me and them. Why is it you think that photo documentary is so well suited to social commentary? Because I, I can really see the points that you're getting at in your uh, in your photography with us, you know, the small captions that you have, and if it was a text. It would, you know, be chapters and chapters long, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think that the power that photography has is that you can show people and you're not telling people. People are seeing for themselves through the pictures. I think that's the power that photography has. You have two daughters. How do they, what do they think about Glasgow when they go back and forth? What does Glasgow mean to your daughters? 
it means they're grandparents. Yeah. And because they haven't seen their grandparents for such a long time, you know, I think it means so much more now. But um, they would both be happy to live in Glasgow in party in my mum's house. Yeah, would they, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and some of the time I was photographing, I would take my eldest daughter with me. Um, it tended to be when I was going to Drum Chapel, I would take uh, Ruby with me. And she's in one of the pictures. Uh, She's just running down the street, um, and she came with me uh, to, to uh, uh, a family's house who had relocated to Glasgow from El Salvador, and they made us this really lovely lunch. And she was there, uh, just taking pictures on on my phone and taking videos. Um, she enjoyed that. It's like go to work with your mum. All right, I'll she. Um, so she she liked that. Um, and she's been uh, she's been infected with the photography bug now as well. Then, is she? That that's that's good to know that you're passing that on. A little bit. I mean, she was kind of like my. I took her along, just so, not to burden my mum with two children. Right, okay, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but she was sort of my assistant as well. Thanks to Kirsty for taking the time to talk. Her book will be out later this year and I would urge you to take a look on her social media and website if you haven't done so already. You can visit my website, chrismcnulty.co.uk or find me on social media. Photographer Stalking is a papercamera.co.uk production. Please visit the website for podcasts, pinhole cameras and much, much more. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, then please like, subscribe or share with a friend. And thanks for listening.